Fantastic. You can be seated. So good to be in church. And so good to be in church in Queensland, God's favorite place on planet Earth. I live in Chicago. I got a call, invited to come and speak in Australia in January. And Jesus said yes before I even needed to pray. Because it's like minus stupid in Chicago right now. So it's good to be in the warm weather. And we've had, already had one great service. And you're correct. Part that they, they were telling me that this is the best looking service out of the two that they have this morning. And you guys looking good, the other service. But you guys don't come. Uh, you're safer in this one. Uh, this is great. Hey, I'd love it if you grab your Bible, turn with me to the book of Matthew. Let's get into the Word of God today. So excited to be here. I feel a little bit awkward saying this, but just to give you some context, I am a bit of a spiritual giant, um, just in the things of the Spirit. I know that doesn't sound very humble, uh, but just, just, just a fact. Uh, this year, uh, just to throw it at you, I will fast 100 days. 100 days of fasting is my goal this year. Not all in one hit, because you'd die. But, uh, but I, I do a thing called accumulative fasting, so I add all my fasting moments up together to get one sum total. And my goal, I've set a goal for 100 days of fasting. That's pretty impressive. Um, so uh, from midnight to 8 a.m. Uh, every, every day throughout the year, I've made a commitment not to eat. That adds up to 100 days. So I don't feel the need to add any more to it. That's, that's right there. Yeah. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23 says, Jesus is speaking, he's telling a parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, this is a parable. It's not like Jesus is telling a, you know, giving some news about a guy that he met last week and reporting it. There's actually a story. He's trying to give an illustration. And so every detail in the story is deliberate. It's not accidental. So this number, 10,000, is not an arbitrary number. It's deliberate. And he's using it to be mind-blowing. Back in that day, this is the number that they would use if they wanted to freak you out about something, how huge something was. Uh, in our family, uh, we use the very, very skilled number, kajillion. If we want to blow somebody out, we go, I love you five times, I love you, I love you, kajillion. We, we, we use that. that. That's sort of like the old school kajillion. And then the talent is deliberate because it was the largest weight that they would use measuring out either gold, silver, or bronze. So Jesus is making a point here. The guy is not able to pay and his master commanded that he be sold, his wife, children, all that he had, and that payment be made. Again, the illustration being that if you owed money you couldn't pay, they'd take you for the payment of the debt. But this debt is so big, he's saying, I need you and your wife and your children, your lineage. And in fact, just give me everything that you have. This is an overwhelming debt. To give you an idea of how overwhelming it is, the talent was equivalent to about 20 years' salary for the average worker. So this guy has 200,000 years of salary in debt to the king. So he's not able to pay it. Uh, the servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. The master, that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Here's the contrast. The denarii is equivalent to about a day's salary. So this guy finds somebody who owes him 100 days, a third of a year. Let's call that $20,000. And so it's not like nothing. It's not like he's forgiving him nothing. If somebody owed you 20 grand, you probably want it back. But in comparison, a third of a year to 200,000 years, this is fairly insignificant. He laid hands on him, took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. His fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not. But went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. There are two major players here in this parable. You have the king and you have the servant. You have the king who's owed a debt that's unpayable. 
200,000 years. Even when he said, please have, have patience, I'll, I'll pay it off. This is an impossible request. And the king had the mentality, the mindset, the resource, and the resolve to say, you know what, you'll never be able to pay it, so I'm going to cut the check for you, we're done here. Then you have the servant who just been forgiven. This huge amount of debt goes out and finds somebody who owes him a third of a year of debt, a hundred days of debt. The, the other guy asks him the exact same thing. Please be patient with me and I'll pay it to you. That's possible. But he would not have grace. He would not have mercy. He didn't have the mindset, the mentality, the resolve, or the resource to cut the check and he would not forgive the debt. We call the king the cajillionaire. You can call the servant whatever you like. Let's just call him the servant. But either one, if you could take their name out and put your name in. If this was a parable about you and somebody else, which one of these guys would you want to be? I don't know about you, but I'd want to be the king. I'd want to be the person who has the resource, the mentality, the ability, the bigness to say, you know what? I'm taking authority here, I'm cutting the check, I'm paying the bill, we're moving on. So I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. I want to talk about how to develop that cajillionaire mindset. But before we do that, let's just pray, commit our time to God. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're here. We thank you that you always have an agenda for every service. Your word never returns void. And God, I pray that you would tailor make this message on this Sunday morning. I pray that it wouldn't be just a repeat of information, but I pray for a fresh anointing right now, God, that I'd have a prophetic edge to speak into the fabric of the lives of the men and women that came to this service. They could have been anywhere else today. They chose to be in your house, and your word declares that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And so, God, let them leave better than when they came in. Make us all better. Make us all a little bit more like you, we pray today. And more than anything, God, Jesus, please, God, help me not to be boring. And God, I pray for the men and women that are in this service. God, help them not to be boring either. That's always really horrible. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, <laughs> I always think that's a good deal. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have ever been asked a question, a little bit scared to answer it, because you felt like it had an agenda? It was loaded. Anybody ever been asked a loaded question? My 19-year-old, my Brooke, she'll do that to me all the time. She'll text me, hey, Dad, will you do me a favor? Question mark. And that's it. That's all the information I'm getting. Uh, I'd like to do her a favor, but I would really like to know what I'm getting myself into before I answer the question. It's like, it's like a loaded question. My wife is the queen of the question with the agenda. It'd be late at night. Lights out, just crawl into bed, pull the sheets up, I'll roll over and look at her unbelievably gorgeous face and she'll look back at this and with a, with a soft voice she'll say to me, hey babe, and I'll be, what babe? And she says, were you thinking about going upstairs and getting yourself a drink? And I'll be like, well, to be honest with you, no, Why? And she goes, well, I thought while you're upstairs that you'd probably get me a drink as well. I mean, you know, that's a question with an agenda. Matthew chapter 18, this passage of Scripture, features two questions. Both are loaded. Both have an agenda. The first question kicks off the chapter and then sets up the topic, sets up the subject, sets up what Jesus is about to say. It has an agenda. The, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him this question. Jesus Who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? How do we get greatness in the kingdom of God? Now, this has an agenda because their understanding of kingdom and our understanding of kingdom are from two different vantage points. You and I, we see the, the kingdom different. For them, they have no cross. They have no resurrection. They have no ascension. They have no baptism of the Holy Spirit. They have no birthing of the church. So their mentality is this, when Messiah comes and they believe Jesus to be the Messiah, when Messiah comes, he's going to rule and reign on the planet. They're going to overthrow the Roman government and they're going to rule and reign. They're, they're, they're going to be in power. This is what they expect Jesus to do. So what they're really saying is Jesus, when it all goes down, when, when, when you take over, when Messiah takes over, 
you're going to need some roll buddies. You're going to need some wingmen. You're going to need some guy on your left and on the right. You're going to need some people in, in power. So how do we get that job to be like Deputy Messiah, you know, or, or the, the Secretary of Sanctification, whatever? How, how, how do we get that kingdom authority? This is what they're asking. How do we get kingdom authority? And that sets in everything Jesus is about to say. Now, in verse 2, Jesus grabs a little child and brings the child into the middle. Now, the child is not the subject. I've heard people preach these next few verses on how we should treat children. And I guess, sort of out of context, but you could use that analogy. But the child is not the subject. The child is the illustration. And the child is brought in as the illustration because in that day, the child had no value. It wasn't like today, oh, look at little Johnny. Let's just give him a trophy for showing up. It's, you know, in that day, they didn't count the children. And so he brings the child into the middle in the context of authority. And then from verse 3, he just starts dropping bombs. In verse 3, he says, if you want great authority, you need to repent and come in like little children. Verse 4, he says, if you want great authority, you've got to humble yourself as this little child. And then you have greatness. In verse 5, how you treat others is a direct representation on how you treat Jesus. In verse 6, he says, if you take advantage of others, when they come in with this childlike state, you're in deep yogurt. In verse 7 to 9, he says, beware of being offended and try not to offend anybody. Other words, children, please, will you just play nicely. Verse 10 to 11, don't treat others arrogantly. Verse 12 to 14, he says, lost people matter to God. He'll leave the crowd and go after the one. And then in verse 15, he says this, but if your brother does offend you, but if you do get hurt, if someone hurts your feelings, if someone betrays you, if someone lets you down, if someone offends you, somebody lies about you, Somebody accuses you of something. Somebody does something to hurt you, wound you, do something bad by you. He says, you take authority over it by you trying to reconcile the situation. He says, you don't wait. He says, you go to them and you talk to them about it. He says, you take authority. He says, if that doesn't work and it doesn't get reconciled, then take someone with you. If that doesn't work and it doesn't get reconciled, then get church leadership involved. If that doesn't work and doesn't get reconciled, have another shot at the process. And then if that doesn't work, then you disconnect. But you don't disconnect immediately. You don't run with your little hurt and just hide away. He says, no, offenses are going to come. Wounds are going to come. Disappointments, letdowns. People are going to, sometimes people are going to hurt you and they have no idea that they even did it. He says, when that happens, great authority comes by you taking authority over the offense. Don't let the offense take authority over you. He says, you've got to do that. Now, now, I'm not sure if there's a generation in church life or even the world that needs to hear that more than right now because we are potentially the most easily offendable generation ever on planet earth. There's a high possibility I've offended you already. I haven't even tried. Give it a couple of minutes. We'll get there. I was preaching in uh, Canada, and a, a young guy came up after I made this comment, we're the most easily offendable generation. And this young guy came up to the pastor and goes, Pastor, I was really offended today when he said that we're the most easily offendable generation ever. I thought, son, you're an illustration right now. <laughs> but we are, man. People get offended. People get offended by, by everything and anything. You, like in, in Chicago, it's so politically correct that if I do a foreign accent in my message, they edit it from the podcast. So I won't offend anybody from that nationality with my accent. You know how bizarre that is? I'm an Australian. I live in America. There's probably not a week that goes by where somebody doesn't walk up to me trying to be an Australian. G'day, mate. How you going? Chuck another shrimp on the barbie. You know that. <laughs> and they sound British. They sent us here on convict boats. If anybody should be offended, it should be me. But not once when they've done that have I responded with a, 
are you trying to sound like me? Not once. I've responded with a, because <laughs> that's the accurate response. It's funny. People get offended so easily. I've offended people. I know that's hard to believe. But I've offended people by stuff I've said, and I've offended people by stuff I didn't even say. I was preaching, and this girl wrote me an email saying, Pastor, you preached last week, and you sent it that, that, that Peter denied Jesus like a little girl. And she said articles on fight like a girl, and the, the, it went on and on. And I wrote back to her and said, thank you for writing and addressing this. And most times I offend people by stuff I say. I said, in your case, I offended you by something I didn't even say. I never said that Peter denied Jesus like a little girl. I said Peter denied Jesus to a little girl, and that's actually what happened. But what happened was her filter. Her filter filtered the word incorrectly. She heard something completely different than I said, not because I said it, because her filter spun it around. In essence, she offended herself. She was, she, was the, she was the offender in the situation. She actually offended herself by the way her brain changed it around. That's what happens. Our filter filters stuff. And we had, there's another time I was preaching on Super Bowl Sunday and, uh, in Minneapolis. I love football. I love games of mindless violence, just the way I'm wired. And, and so, uh, so I was talking about baseball and how I hate baseball. Didn't grow up on baseball, don't really understand baseball. If you talk baseball to the baseball lovers in America, they're going to go, you've got to understand it's all about the statistics. That doesn't make me love it anymore. <laughs> you can't bring math into my sport and I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> no. So, so, so I'm talking about baseball and how what is, it's like, it's like, it's like cricket on Prozac. It's the slowest thing ever in, it's just like, and they'll play nine innings and score like a run. And so I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, let's, let's, let's make it more exciting. Because here's a reason why the scores are so low, because they hit the ball and by the time they finally get it to the outfield, the guys are standing there resting, got a huge glove, oh, there's a ball. <laughs> got it. You're out. So I'm thinking, make it hard for him. Let's make it hard for him. Now, not all the way through the game, but just maybe once or twice through the game. Maybe the coach could be in the dugout. He's got a little button that he could hit. Not all the time, maybe two or three times. And just go, boom, and then release pit bulls. How, how could it be, if you're the fielder, now there's pit bulls chasing the ball down. You're trying to catch the ball and dodge the pit bulls. I think this is awesome. What could be scarier than that? Ha-ha, set the pit bulls on fire. Let's have flaming pit bulls come at them. Because could there be anything scarier than a flaming pit bull coming at you? Anyway, so this woman writes me this letter. She's going to report me to Peter uh, for cruelty to animals. She couldn't believe I was so cruel that I would set pit bulls on fire. Violently angry. She went on and on and on and on and on and on. And, uh, and so... Oh, I was just, it was, I, had to, I had to write a letter of apology. I'm like, I'm so sorry that you were offended by, you know, me setting the pit bulls on fire. But I didn't have a chance to tell you before I told the joke that I'd actually specifically dressed all the pit bulls up in fireproof suits. Uh, so none of them would be injured. And not one pit bull was actually injured in my joke. They all escaped uninjured. In fact, they had a healthy feast on the fielder. It's the sort of meat that they like. It's fresh. And so, but her filter, we went to her Facebook page and checked it out, and she was a dog lover. Like every photo of her, every photo, every post with her, with a dog. She's got a chihuahua, a sausage dog, all these, all these dogs. And, and so her filter, she didn't hear the joke about baseball. She's just like, you do that to a and does, Am I making sense? And, and so it's just scary. So scary. In, in the last election in America, they created a safe room in a university in Pennsylvania for students that were offended when President Trump got voted in. These students so offended and traumatized by an election result that they had to have a safe room to process the anxiety. of, the, And that got worse. They bought them in puppies to cuddle. Probably supplied by the lady in Minneapolis. They had puppies to cuddle. I'm thinking if an election result traumatizes you so badly that you need a safe room and puppies to cuddle, you're going to need to buy a flock of puppies. 
because life is going to beat the tar out of you. There's some tough stuff coming at you down the pike right now. You just better have your own little herd or something. Puppy. Scary. That's what Jesus is saying. You've got to be bigger than that. You can't, you can't let things, you can't. And then he goes on in verse 18. He says, And surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. If two or three of you agree, I'm going to be there. He's teaching us how to have biblical authority. He's teaching us how to have biblical power. You've got to get over stuff. Some's coming at you. Some of it's deliberate. Some of it's uh, you. He, he says, but you've got to deal with all this or you're going to lose your authority in life. So it leads to the second question with the agenda. Peter's hearing all this, and so Peter's like, well, if we've got to forgive people, and that gives us spiritual authority, well, then how many times should we forgive? This is his question, and he gives the answer seven times. Now, Peter's responding like this because seven times to Peter is mind-blowing generosity. The rabbis taught in that day, that if you're going to be generous with forgiveness, that you'd forgive three times. The rabbis taught, if somebody hurt you three times and you, you forgave them, then, then you're, so Peter has like doubled it and added some GST. He's like, he's added tax. So in his mind, he, he thinks this is huge. So this is how Peter thought it would go down. This is how I believe. Peter's like, gather around, gentlemen, gather around. I want you to look and learn, look and learn, look and learn. Watch the master. Watch the master operate in his zone. Now, Jesus is talking about forgiveness. Watch how this goes down. So Peter comes out. Hey, Jesus, uh, son of God, um, I hear you talking about kingdom authority and how we get it. And you're talking about this whole subject of forgiveness. So I, I'm just wondering, how many times should we forgive somebody? I'm rolling with the number. I think I'd forgive them seven times. And his anticipation would be that Jesus would go, Yea, verily and therefore, Peter. And yea, again I sayest, yea, thou just comes out with the number seven like that without any warning. Thou hast fry my mind with the level of generosity that would come with forgiveness from thou art the greatest in the kingdom. Is there anybody in the world? As, that's what he thought Jesus would say. But Jesus answers him with, eh, wrong answer. Why, why, don't, why don't we try uh, 70 times 7? Like, like why, why are we limiting this? If you want to be great and you're going to go through life, you just got to get to that place where forgiveness is an unlimited commodity. Then he says, there's a king who had a servant who owed him 10,000 talents. He goes into that parable. And he teaches us the Kajillionaire mindset. Now, the reality for Jesus would be that he would never ever ask us to do something that he himself wouldn't do. When he went to the cross, they threw everything at him. They, they arrested him unrighteously with false accusations. They beat him with their fists. They tore hair out of his face. They scourged him with an inch of his life. They stripped him naked and hung him on a cross. They nailed him to the cross. They put an accusation over his head. They spat at him. They divided his clothes up and gambled. It was just a horror. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus looked down at the people that were doing that to him. And he made this statement. He says, Father, please forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. There in that moment, he could have called down heaven and judged them. He could have called down fire. But in that moment, he chose to forgive with these people throwing so much stuff at him unrighteously. That's the kajillionaire mindset. If you want to develop it, I believe it starts with this. You've got to learn how to receive the promise. You've got to learn how to receive the promise. When Jesus went to the cross, he didn't die for his sin. He died for ours. When he went to the cross, it wasn't about him, it was about us. That we would get an opportunity for a brand new start in our life and relationship with God. 
If you've never taken that opportunity ever before, at the end of this service, just before we wrap up, we're going to pray a prayer. And if you're in church today just seeking after God or seeking after a fresh start in life, we're going to give you an opportunity to enter into that prayer and receive, maybe for some of you, the very, very first time, or for some of you who are coming home to receive the love and the grace of Jesus that He displayed on the cross. But everything begins there with receiving forgiveness for our sin. But not just receiving forgiveness, but knowing you're forgiven and living forgiven. You've got to learn how to receive the promise. Because what I found is there are a lot of people that can understand that God can forgive them for a certain amount of things, but are not super convinced there are some things in their life that God's forgiven them from. And they hold guilt, and they hold condemnation, and they hold embarrassment, and they hold shame, and they can't really get out of the prison of their own mistakes. But Jesus come to set us free. And the Bible says, if Jesus sets us free, the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. He come to set you free. Could you imagine if the guy forgiven 200,000 years of debt said to the king, that's just too big. That's too much. I, I, I can't accept that you could forgive me all that. There's at least got to be 10,000 years that I should hold on and pay off. But he didn't. He, he received the whole lot wholeheartedly. That's what we need to do. Because the Bible says that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's hard to forgive everybody else if you haven't forgiven you. So you've got to learn to get to that place where you know God's forgiven you, present, past, and future, and that you forgive you your sin. And you've got to get to that place where you get your head up, shoulders back, look at life in the eye. I'm a child of God. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm pure. I'm white. I'm holy. I'm a son or daughter of God. You've got to learn how to receive the promise. Second thing that you have to do is you've got to learn how to reciprocate the privilege. You've got to learn how to reciprocate the privilege. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. What meant? He'd already forgiven. He'd already let these guys go. It wasn't something he had to think about. He'd already forgiven the men that were doing this to him. You've got to learn how to reciprocate the privilege. The, the, the tension in the parable is this guy's just forgiven so much, and then he won't forgive this little tiny thing. And I think most of us, when we read it, go, that's wrong. That's so wrong. You were just forgiven so much. Why? Why couldn't you forgive that? Which, in essence, is the parable. That's the, Jesus like, you've been forgiven by God, and he expects us to live a life that brings forgiveness. So we're going to learn how to reciprocate the privilege, learn how to forgive those. Some of us don't even forgive little tiny things. Somebody looked at you the wrong way. A pastor said something, you know, one way you didn't like what he said, and I didn't like that. He, and people leave churches. They leave communities over little tiny insignificant offenses that are incomparable to the sin that God's forgiven them over. And they hold it in their life, all their life, and they wonder why they're weak in their authority and faith because you've got to let it go. Now, some things that we've got to forgive are bigger. There are some things in life, I, I, I'm not going to lie, are hard to let go because they're so hurtful. They feel so destructive. They feel like they, 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 they rob something from you. And sometimes it's hard to forgive. But Jesus didn't make that an optional extra. When he taught us to pray, he said, Father, forgive me. My sins as I forgive those who sin against me. And when he amened, he went back and explained it. I'm not sure you got that bit. He said, that's the difficult bit, to forgive other people. Let me go back and explain. He went back and explained it. Why? Because when you can learn how to forgive others, it builds your kingdom authority. That you're not carrying debt that other people owe you. So you learn how to reciprocate the privilege. Now, now we've got to understand that forgiveness is not ignoring that it ever happened. It's not just pretending it never happened. And forgiveness is not pretending it didn't hurt. There are some things that really significantly hurt you, distressed you, robbed something from you. So forgiveness is not pretending it didn't hurt. Ah, oh, it doesn't matter, it didn't hurt. No, significant, forgiveness acknowledges that hurt. That could have destroyed me. But what forgiveness does is it takes authority over the hurt and over the pain. Now, when you're hurt, somebody took something from you. This is what happens when you don't forgive. When you don't forgive, you say, you robbed me my joy. 
I was doing good until you did that to me, but you stole my joy. I want you to give it back. I was doing really good until you did that to me. You stole my innocence. I want you to give it back. I was doing okay until you said that, but, but you robbed me of my peace, and now I'm upset, I'm anxious, I'm nervous. You took my peace from me. I want you to give me my peace back. That's what we're saying when we don't forgive. You owe me a third of a year of debt. I want you to give that back. Go to jail till you give that back. But what forgiveness says is you can't give that back. The king was smart enough to go, 200,000 a year, you can't give that back. But the king says, I don't need you to give that back because I've got the resource to cut the check and pay it and wipe out the debt and we can, we can destroy this contract and we can move on from here. What forgiveness says is you can't give that back to me, but I don't need you to. Because I'm a child of God. You robbed me of my peace. You can't give me my peace back. But here's the good news for me. I don't need you to give me my peace back because my God shall supply all my need according to His riches. I've got a heavenly bank account that I can download peace from. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will keep my heart and mind in the knowledge of Him. He will keep me in perfect peace if my mind is just stayed on Him. I don't need to get my peace back from you because I can download my peace from heaven. I I don't need you to give me my joy back. I'm not looking at you as my source of joy. I can upload joy from the wells of my salvation. I've got joy unspeakable and it's full of glory. Joy is a, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. I get my joy from heaven. I don't need to get my innocence back from you. I'm righteous in God. I get my innocence from Him. No matter what they took from you, I don't care what they rob from you, they can't give it back. You don't need them to. When you forgive, you acknowledge in spiritual authority, I don't need it from them. I'm taking my download from heaven. I'm cutting the check and I'm breaking. And here's what happens. It puts you in authority because biblically speaking, whoever pays wins. Who's the greatest person in that parable, the king or the servant? The king. Why? He paid the bill. He had the authority. The Bible says the borrower is servant to the lender. So as soon as you cut the check, you take authority. So rather than being a victim of what they did to you, now you've got authority. You're above it. You may never even have to verbalize it. I'm not talking about going to everybody who hurt you and go, you robbed me of my peace. You know, I don't need you to give me my peace back. I'm getting my peace from heaven. You don't need to necessarily go to them personally and tell them that. You just got to tell yourself that. Because you're probably the one. They probably moved on, don't even think about you anymore. You're carrying it. But when you cut that check, you break that contract, you move on. Here's the third thing. You need to learn how to reconfigure the judgment. Probably the hardest thing in the forgiveness equation that we do. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says, Father, I've forgiven them, but I want you to forgive them. Because the Bible teaches us in the New Testament, when you forgive, you leave the vengeance to God which is actually a pretty cool thing. I don't know if you've ever done that, ever been the part where you go, God, I forgive them, you, you take them out. That's a pretty cool, fun thing. I did this as a young pastor. I probably wouldn't do it again. I'm glad I did it now because it's just a great sermon illustration. But I had a guy in my church in the early days of the church I was pioneering in New Zealand, and uh, he was just talking smack about me. It was like every rumor and every just bad came with his name attached to it. So I just got jack of all this, you know. So I rang this guy, hey, man, how you doing? And he was really nervous when he heard it was me because he'd been talking smack about me, you know. I'm why? I'm good. Yeah, why? I said, just checking on you, just making sure everything's okay. So like, everything's okay? I said, you sure? Like, you're healthy, everything's great, you're fine. I'm worried about your health. Oh, no, I'm think, I'm, I think I'm healthy. I said, oh, that's good, man, that's good. I said, I was just worried about you because I keep hearing all these rumors that have your name attached to them. And I've been praying, God, I'm not going to deal with it. Um, I want you to deal with it. I, I, I'm not going to judge him. I, God, I want, I want you to judge him. I said, I got a bit panicky this morning because I'm thinking, man, if I was God, I'd smite you with boils or something. And so, so uh, I said, I got panicky. Now, now, if you've said nothing about me, then uh, it's all cool. But you have, you've been to the doctor to get a checkup. 
He's like, well, no, I haven't actually. I said, oh, dude, I do that in a hurry. Um, <laughs> it was a fun thing to do. I don't know if I'd do it again. And, uh, but that's the principle of the New Testament. God, God says, leave it to me. But Jesus said, Dad, we're done. Our challenge once we forgive is this next process of what do we do next? Some things should be just, are we done? They said the wrong thing to you the wrong way. It may have been me. I may have heard it the wrong way. I forgive. You don't want God to judge it with, you know, just move on. But there are other things that you, you need to reconfigure the judgment. Uh, in the parable, when the king heard about the servant he forgave, throwing the other guy in jail, he brought him back and threw him in jail. Not because he owed him money, but what he'd done to somebody else. Reconfiguring the judgment is, what they did to you, is it, is it worth anything else? Like, I can forgive you, but should I trust you again? So I wrote off 200,000 years of debt, and you asked me on Monday to borrow another 50 bucks, my answer is going to be no. Why? Because you didn't, weren't able to pay the last bit of debt. I'm not putting myself into a position where you can hurt me again, so I, I don't trust you. I forgive you, but I don't trust you. Forgiveness is given, trust is earned. So there's some people in your life that you can forgive and move on, they don't hurt you anymore, but they actually have to earn their right to get back in. And you may need to lift the, lift the standard so that you don't open yourself to be hurt the exact same way. Does that make sense? Then you need to think about, what, what should I do from here? Because they hurt me. Let's, let's take it to the extreme. Let's say you, you, you have to forgive sexual abuse. And they did that to you when you were 10 or 5 or whatever. Do you have to forgive that person? Yeah. They can't give back to you what they took from you. They can't give it back. You need to get that from heaven. Do you need to get healed? Yes. Do you need to take authority so you have the victory and not the victim? Yes. Can they be any part in the process? Probably not. But you've got to take authority. Now, what's the right thing to do? Just move on and forget that it happened? Not if they can reoffend. So, maybe you need to talk to somebody and get that out in the open. Maybe you need to report it to the police. Not because you want vengeance and you pay and burn. I hope you just rot in jail. That, see, when you have authority over it, that's not your motive. Your motive is that ain't going to happen to anybody else. Now, that's easy for me to say. And if this is your story, whatever you do, don't walk out of here today and report it to the police. You need to have a conversation with somebody in authority and come up with a plan because that could open up a world of hurt for you that you may not be ready for yet and may need to process. So it actually needs some wisdom. Does that make sense? But what you do need is at least take the first step and say, I need some help in this. Please help me come up with a plan. But reconfiguring the judgment is always hard because we just think forgiving is, is just forgetting. But it's not if somebody else can get hurt. Does that make sense? Uh, the, the fourth and last thing is somebody comes up and plays something unbelievably romantic on the keyboard. Uh, I, this is one of my favorite times when they come up and they play. On, I, I like it if I'm sitting down listening to somebody preach. That's my favorite thing because uh, it means the message is nearly over. <laughs> Think of it like a public service to people with ADD. Because if you've got ADD right now, you're like, you nearly done! <laughs> and then they play music and uh, it's sort of like fistfuls of Ritalin to the soul. It's beautiful. But the fourth and last thing is you've got to learn how to repurpose the pain. Jesus made this comment. He said, Father, please forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. But the truth was they did. They were professional executioners. This wasn't their first crucifixion. They did this for a living. Every act of violence they inflicted on Jesus, they did it for a reason. Every act of humiliation, they inflicted on Jesus for a reason. Nothing was accidental. Nothing was like an oopsie. Everything was deliberate. Humble him, kill him, destroy him. It was done all out of, out of, out of evil. But Jesus said, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. What was he saying? He was saying, Father, they think they're destroying me. 
but there's a bigger purpose than this. Never once did he say, it's okay, I like the cross, we should do this more often. I like the way it stretches my arms out, great, great for my tricep. He wasn't saying that. In fact, the Bible says, who, who for the joy that was set before him was able to endure that pain. So the pain wasn't enjoyable, but what was before him was what drove him. He realized there's a bigger purpose in my pain than me feeling my pain. It doesn't stop at the pain. There's a purpose behind this. And so he was saying, Father, please forgive them. They have no idea that what they're doing to me is now going to be a part of my story to bring salvation to a world. That's like your pain. I don't think God ever wants you to get to the place where you go, I forgive them. And you know what? I'm, I'm, cool. I'm glad that happened to me. I'm glad they hurt me like that. I'm glad he left. I'm glad he left me with three children and I had to become a solo mom. I'm, I'm glad she left me with, with three girls and I had to become a solo dad. That was just a great time when they, when they broke. I just wish my heart could get broken more. God's never saying that. What he says to you is, you acknowledge the hurt, you forgive, you move on, and then you realize that part of your story is probably a part of somebody's story beside you at work. Maybe even a part of somebody's story who's sitting beside you in church today. And maybe they're right in the pain part of it. And maybe so overwhelmed with the pain, they're like, I, I, I don't know if I can ever get free. And God puts you into their world to say, yeah, you, you can. There's hope at the end of that hurt. God puts you beside somebody at work, at school, college, on the bus, wherever, the Uber driver. Somebody in your world that needs to hear how you overcome the horrible thing that you went through. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the power of our testimony. Our story has power. Your story has power. In the Old Testament, there was a, a young man, his name was Joseph. And uh, he was a sport brat, 17, testosterone-infused teenager who was a sport kid and had a dream. His brothers hated him. His dad favored him more than any other brother. And not subtly either, not like, hey man, don't tell anybody, but you're my favorite. No, he bought him a Technicolor dream coat in a world of beige. They, they, they would go down to breakfast and his father would serve everybody else rice bubbles. They'd give Joseph Fruit Loops. Everybody knew he was highly favored. And the Bible says his brothers hated him for his dreams and the jacket. They hated him. Then they see him coming one day and, and, and they conspire amongst themselves. Let's kill him. Look, look how bad this plan is. This is the plan of his brothers. Let's kill him. Let's just take him out, stab him, kill him. Another brother's like, oh, let's not kill him. We don't want to do that with our hands. Let's throw him into a pit. And then he'll die in the pit. And he'll die, but technically we didn't kill him. That was their plan B. Then the third plan is, look at that. There's some Midianite slave traders. Let's sell him into slavery. He'll die in slavery and we make cash. That's a win-win. And so that's what they roll with. They kill him and make money. They sell him into slavery. Decades roll on. These men are now in their 40s, their 50s. And famine hits the land. They're dying of starvation. They make a trek to Pharaoh's kingdom because he's the only one making money in recession. Try to get a greeting with uh, audience with Pharaoh. They can't. They meet his number two guy. The guy they talk to is the second most powerful man on the planet that day. About halfway through the conversation, they realize that this is Joseph. This is the brother they sold into slavery. He didn't die. He lived. And not only lived, but now he's thriving as the number two guy in Pharaoh's kingdom. So they immediately think, we tried to kill him. He's definitely going to kill us. With tears rolling down his face, Joseph makes this comment to his brothers. I, I love it. He says, you meant it for evil. He didn't give them a pass. He didn't go, hey guys, it's all right. He goes, you meant it for evil. What you did was jacked up. 
That's wrong. What you did was wrong. I was your little brother. You should have protected me. You're jealous of me because of a jacket. You killed me over some jealousy. That's messed up. That's messed up. But God meant it for good. I'm not angry. I've forgiven you. But God meant it for good. Because then he goes, because if I wasn't, if I didn't go through that, I wouldn't be here. I, I, I wouldn't be on this throne. He's saving our family from starvation and saving our world from starvation. Millions would have died in this famine had I not been here. And I wouldn't be here if you hadn't done what you've done. So even though I don't like what you did, and I'm not giving you a pass, and I'm not saying it's okay, and I'm not saying I'm glad it happened, it did happen, and I can't change it, but despite it happening, God had a bigger plan for me, and I didn't, it didn't destroy me, it set me here. I wouldn't want it to happen again. I don't think we should do it to anybody else, but having said that, I'm here right now because it happened. I can't unchange that. I wish it wasn't a part of my story, but it is a part of my story, and, and I'm, I, can, I can weave it into the fabric of my life, and I'm here now bringing salvation to all of our generation because of my story. Now, Joseph could have said this if he knew, but he had no way of knowing. He could have said, Judah, get out here. You're my older brother. You should have looked after me, but you didn't. You should have. It's jacked up you didn't look after me. He says, but Judah, this is all put on because of you. Because in your loins is the Messiah. And Judah, if you die in this famine... Jesus dies in you. There is no Messiah. He was carrying the seed to the Messiah. None of us here today would be able to receive salvation had Joseph not walked through his pain. Joseph's story brings us salvation. We get to receive the promise because Joseph walked through pain. It doesn't make his pain okay. It doesn't make what his brothers did to him okay. No one gets a pass. He was just able to make something bigger out of it because he learned how to forgive. He learned how to move on. He learned how to embrace his story. And that's what God asks us to do. We can't change the horrible things of your story, just how you feel about it. And then when you get the victory over it, using your story to bring someone who's in that pain right now to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the power of forgiveness. That's a kajillionaire mindset. Can we pray right now as the band comes? Holy Spirit, overshadow us, we pray. I don't want to make light today, and I know, God, that you're not doing that of anybody else's pain. There may be people sitting here today going, if you knew the pain and how horrible it was, that you would never preach like you preach. And God, I don't know their story, but I, don't, I do know you. And I do know your ability to heal the most horrific pasts. And so God, if there are people here today struggling in their ability to go over, get over those things that were set to destroy them, I pray by your spirit right now, by your grace, you would overshadow them and love would fall like a blanket from heaven over them. Holy Spirit, let your grace and mercy just saturate brokenness today. Jesus, you declared that you came to heal the brokenhearted, to put the pieces back and make us whole. Holy Spirit, do that in this room today. Do the work of Jesus. Do, do, do Heal the brokenness. Heal, heal people who feel lost. Heal, heal people who feel angry. Heal people today, God, who feel frustrated. Heal people today who struggle from anxiety, struggle from bitterness, struggle from resentment. Lord God, they're, they're just trying to get through. Lord God, they don't even know how they're going to make it. And Lord God, I pray that you would heal brokenness today. Bring them to that place where they can forgive. Take authority over those things that were set to destroy them. Lord God, and move on in authority in Jesus' name. With just eyes closed everywhere, I'm going to pray one prayer today and then hand back. But I said a moment ago that we give people an opportunity for a fresh start every week. If you're here today and you're not right with God and you want a brand new start in your life and relationship with Him, you say, John, I've never prayed. I've never asked Jesus into my world. Or John, I prayed that 
once, but I haven't really been living close to God. And today I'd like a fresh start, a, a do-over. Can God still love me? The answer is yes. Will God, can God still receive me? The answer is yes. He's just waiting for you to ask Him to do that, and He'll respond with a big yes. If you say, John, I need a brand new start today in my life and relationship with God, I want to pray that prayer. I'm going to count to three, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. When you lift your hand, we'll acknowledge it. God will see it. And then in a moment, we'll all pray. Everybody in the room will pray, but you can pray this as your prayer. If you say, that's me today, I need a brand new start today. It's my day, my relationship and life with God. I want to pray that prayer. Get ready to raise your hand. One, two, three. Just lift it in faith right now. God bless you. God bless you. You can put that down. Awesome. Anybody else like that today? I saw your hand. Is there anybody else? Just lift it real high. Say, that's me. You haven't raised your hand yet. But you say, John, that's me. I need, to, I, I need a brand new start today. And today, is there anybody else? I want to give you an opportunity to say, that's me. And today's my day. Just raise your hand real quickly if that's you. I haven't raised your hand, but you know you need to. Just lift it real high. I'll sit. I'll acknowledge you. You can put it down. And then we're going to pray this prayer. Anybody else today? Last time I'm going to ask. Lift it up real high. I'll acknowledge you. You can put it down. Then we're going to pray this prayer. Last time I'm asking. All right, let's pray. If you raised your hand or really wish you would have, personalize this prayer. Make it yours. God will hear. Say this with me. Say, Dear Jesus, I come to you today and I'm asking you for a brand new start in my life and relationship with you. Please forgive me for all my past and give me the strength to forgive those who hurt me. Today, I embrace your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness right here, right now, in Jesus' name, amen. Father, do a miracle in those lives, we pray today in your name, amen. Come on, somebody give Jesus Christ a great round of applause. And